Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles, the Managing Director of B Squared and the host of the Sendcast, the podcast for special needs. Each week we'll be talking about a different topic within the world of special educational needs to improve our knowledge, to provide support to professionals working in schools and to empower parents. In this episode, we're talking about how our brains project our past. And I'll be discussing this with one of my regular guests, Ali Knowles. Ali is an emotional therapist and founder of the Ollie Model. She supports emotional resilience in children and young people. The Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B Squared. We are here to help show the small steps of progress pupils at CND make. We help schools to show this progress for a wide range of abilities and ages, and we do this based on the English curriculum, the Scottish curriculum, or the curriculum for Wales. So if you're a primary school struggling to show progress or trying to identify where a pupil isn't making progress, then we can help. Visit the B Squared website or click on the meeting link in the show notes to book a meeting with me, and I will take you through our assessment software. Let's get on with the podcast. On this week's show, we're discussing how our brains project our past. Joining me today is one of my more, more regular guests, Ali Knowles. Ali is the creator of the Ollie Model, the author of the series Ollie and His Superpower Books, trainer of Ollie Coaches. Her middle name isn't Ollie, but she's also an emotional therapist. Welcome to the show, Ali. Nice to see you. <laughs> We've been having lots of fun before we started, and now we're trying to be very serious. So, why do we dread starting a new job? Why do we not like going home to the in-laws for Christmas? Why do we not look forward to Monday morning and going to work? Well, all of those things. The only reason we wouldn't look forward to anything is because we know not to. And we know not to because we've had a previous experience where it wasn't great. So that's why that happens. But a bigger question is, why do we get anxious or not want to do something that we probably haven't done before? or that we maybe have done before, but not in the same way. So an example, the number of people that you hear them do this all the time. Oh, yeah, we're, they're either going to do this, right? We are, yeah, we're going on holiday to Spain. I'm really looking forward to it. Last time we went, it was fantastic. And they'll wax about how wonderful it was. And then you'll have other people. Well, we've not been to Spain before. I know it's going to happen. You know, the flight will be delayed. The hotel won't be any good. I just know. And they doom and gloom it. And the question, why do we do that? It's a fundamental thing about human beings. We're all about keeping ourselves safe. And our brain does that, or rather our subconscious or knowledge world, living great library of everything you've ever learned. And the thing is, the brain does not like gaps. It doesn't like not knowing something. Because if it doesn't know, it's uncertain. And if it's uncertain, it gets anxious because it's not in control. Yes. So... If ever we're going to do something that we haven't done before, doesn't always say that you're going to have the fear of God before you go. But an awful lot of the time, you will. And you'll be, what happens if this happens? What happens if that happens? What happens if that happens? And you'll be, and then a holiday, it could be starting a new job. What happens if they're all horrible? What happens if you know I can't do it? And the only way that you can think that way is because you know to, because you've experienced it, either personally or from somebody else's story in the past. So there's something in your library or subconscious about an event like that, exactly the same or nearly like it, that didn't go well. And if it didn't go well and someone got hurt physically or emotionally, because the brain can't tell the damn difference, then 
it wants to protect you and keep you away from it. Anxiety does that. Anxiety, fight or flight, something that could harm you. You go into fight or flight response and you run away or you pretend to be an emu or whatever. (laughs) But one of the things the brain does is it projects what's going to happen. And it'll either do it in a really positive one because you've had a positive experience. Or, so if it's something you haven't done before, like go on holiday abroad, you haven't done it before, so you don't know if it's going to be good or bad. But because your brain doesn't like gaps and it doesn't know how it will be, it's like, is there anything else I haven't done before? And how did that go? Oh, walking into a pub on my own. Oh, my God, that was awful. Everybody turned and stared. So your brain will go back through its own files to try and join the dots up where there are gaps. And I suppose it will even take other people's stories. Completely, yeah. It doesn't have to be something you've experienced, be something you've seen on television, read in the newspaper, or somebody else's story, because that's now in your memory banks. Your job, your brain's job is to protect you, and it protects you by making sure you've got a rough idea what's coming so that you're prepared, which is why on the run-up to doing anything new, you will potentially put yourself through hell with all the worst-case scenarios. Why does it do it? One, to try and put you off doing it, but ultimately, if it puts you through all those worst-case scenarios 15 million times before you get on the plane or whatever it is you're doing, you've lived it, you've survived it, and you've worked your way around it. So it's almost training you for a possible bad outcome so that you're ready and prepared for it. You've heard the saying that, you know, the greatest fear is fear itself. Yeah. And it's you're, you're predicting what might happen even though it won't. You live it, you relive it, and off you go. And the other thing that the brain does, which is really annoying, just three main things. And if you ever stop and really listen to someone talking, certainly as therapists you hear this all the time, someone will come and say, but oh, a couple of weeks ago we did couples counselling too. And they've been married 30 years, got a couple of kids. And I said, so, you know, where are you at? Oh, it's awful. It's always been awful. We can't stand one another. It's horrible. And I'm thinking, you've been together 30 years. Now, have you put up with that for 30 years or something else going on here? One of the things the brain does is it deletes. So it will delete anything that is contrary to the story you're telling yourself if that story works for you. So these two have decided it's come to an end. They need to split up. If they dared to think about the good times, it might make them sort of question, should they split up? So the brain deletes anything good. So they couldn't tell me anything good about this 30 years because the brain is like, right, this is what we're going to do. We don't want anything getting in the way there to change our mind. So it deletes. People come to me with anxiety. How long have you had anxiety? Always, all the time. How long? Since forever. Never a time you don't. No, never. And again... The reason that the brain does that, it's deleting the times when there isn't anxiety, is because there is a belief that the anxiety is helping in some way. It's become part of who they are, part of their story. Is that like a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? It completely is, but that means there's no gaps. Yeah? If there's any gap, that's like falling down a hole you didn't see. That's dangerous, so we don't want gaps. So the brain gets rid of them. It deletes them. What it also does is it distorts thoughts and memories as well. Now, by distort, I don't just mean it changes it. And What it does is it does exactly what I've just said. It projects forward. So it distorts your future. That You've no idea what your future is, let's be real. You might know you're going to get on an airplane at three o'clock, but no idea what's going to happen. We never do. So it distorts your future because it doesn't like the bit of, I don't know what's going to happen. And the only way it can fill in those gaps is with what's in its database, something from your past, as we've said, experienced, 
person here otherwise. And the final thing that it does all the damn time is it generalizes. So yeah. you'll hear people saying, well, yeah, now I've had this anxiety forever. And everybody knows that, you know, once you've got anxiety, that's it. And it's probably hereditary. I mean, everybody knows that. And people say that's generalization. And again, it's because they can't back up the story that they're telling themselves without using a deletion, a distortion, or a generalization. Yeah. The question is, why would anyone want to back up a story about, you know, being in a, having anxiety? Why would you want to back your story up? Because if you back your story up that you're always going to have it, it's never going to go away, and there's never a time you haven't got it, that's kind of keeping you trapped, isn't it? But the truth is, everything we do, everything, is a story we write for ourselves. All day long, we are writing a story about ourselves. We are our own authors. Now, in the beginning, when we're little, those stories are pretty well planned out by what's going on around us and the people in our world that we're learning from. So we become part of somebody else's story, mum and dad's story. They like rugby, I like rugby. You know, they do this on a Sunday morning, they do this on Sunday morning. Then about 10, 11, you start to kick against that a bit because your brain starts to question a bit more. You're not quite so black and white. Teenage years, when we start kicking off, you start writing a slightly different story. Usually a really outrageous one just to bust down mum and dad's reality of the world because you can. <laughs> and a load of other stuff going on there. It's tough being a teenager. Yeah. But you are still writing another story. But you're writing your own story. And I think... The most powerful thing that we do is we get children to recognize they're doing that from the off, that everything that they think is real, okay, so I've got a cup here. This cup is real. It's solid, okay? But everything they believe to be real, feelings, thoughts, beliefs, aren't, unless they allow them to be. It is a story they're telling themselves. And we tell ourselves that story because it makes sense of our world because we have to make sense of our world, because if there's a gap, it freaks us out. So then you have this lovely scenario with people that are struggling with mental health issues, not all, but let's take anxiety for an example. And it's my anxiety. I've always had anxiety. My mum and dad had anxiety. That's why I've got anxiety. They're telling themselves a story that justifies why they are, yet they've come to a therapist to help move it. But the interesting thing is there's something going on at a deeper level. As much as they want to let go of this anxiety, because obviously it's not great, <laughs> it's really horrible if you struggle with it, there's also a part of them that is, well, this is me, this is my story. And this is a very subconscious thing. But all the time they're sitting here telling you they want to get rid of this subconscious, this anxiety, there's another part of their brain going, hang on a minute, but we understand anxiety and it keeps us safe because we know what to do and we know what we can't do. And it stops us doing anything stupid because that could be awful. I mean, we might try and climb a mountain, goal setting and fail. So my anxiety stops me doing any of that. So you kind of got this two-fold thing going all the time. But whether your brain is deleting, distorting, generalizing, or writing a story that might not be the best one you could have, it's doing it to protect you. The same, better the devil you know, quite literally. I have people that are very, very depressed. And you hear them, you know, and you're in this dark cave, you're depressed. And that cave's got no air. There's creepy crawlers in the back. The food's rubbish. It's not good for you. So me, I'm thinking, get out here in the sunshine, party, have some fresh fruit. But that's unknown. So that's terrifying. So as much as somebody might want to step out of this cave and get help, 
it's terrifying. They know the cave. They know they can survive in the cave, even if that survival isn't great. But they don't know because there's a gap. They haven't experienced it. What's outside that cave? It's all about protection. And we do, we always focus on the negative bits in those times. You're talking about how was your holiday? And you'll go, if it was great, you'll tell every good thing. If it was bad, because the air, you go, oh, and then, and it's just, and then, and any little bit will become bigger than actually it was. And the reality is, is once one bad thing happened, you were kind of looking for more bad things. Yeah, it kind of set your tone, and that's what you're looking for. So that's what you kind of remember from your holiday. I think with our lives, a lot of time we look back, and there are times you'll have great things, but a lot of time, and especially when you want to change your life, you obviously, you generally don't want to change your life if it's going well. Oh, yeah. Generally, at the point of wanting change when it's not going well, which means you're probably going to remember all those negative bits, which then reinforce where you are, as you were saying. I think, I think what happens is if life's going well and, you know, we all have ups and downs, but pretty much it's pretty good and your memories are all good, you will remember them, but you're more likely to remember when something went wrong because when it's going good, that wasn't a threat or a danger to you. Yes. You... We are all about self-protection. 80% of the time, we are not actually thinking. We're acting remotely, subconsciously. It's it's easiest way to explain that. You've ever driven a car and, oh, I'm here. How'd that happen? Or you're driving along, clutch, gear, brake, eyeliner, phone. You're not thinking. You're just doing. Cup of coffee in the morning, getting dressed. 80% of the day, we are not actually thinking. We are acting subconsciously on things we've learned and experienced. And our brain's job, in effect, and the way we explain it in Ollie's world, is if it's good for us, that's great, we can keep doing it. If it's not and it's hurt us before, or something like it connected and it can be quite spurious has hurt us before, then we go into anxiety, fight or flight response, because the brain says danger, run, fight. So it's more important to us that we're aware of things that could hurt us than the things that are good for us, which is a shame, isn't it? But it is all about keeping us safe. Generally, it's, it's prejudice. And there's prejudice, which can go wrong, but prejudice is generally there as a safety thing. Yeah, they're not like us. Yeah, if I've not experienced before, blah, 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 it's bad. Oh, okay. But then hopefully you'll learn more about situations or people. And then the next time that happens, you're not going to make a her reaction. You'll just make a, ah, cool. Yeah. Yep, yeah, I'm here. Also, the first time your flight's cancelled, I've never had a flight cancelled. What am I doing? Oh, my God. Come on, holiday with me. It happens every blooming time, I tell you. Next time your flight's cancelled, well, they're going to be four hours late. I'm getting money. Whatever. You, you learn. Well, this, could be like, this is what means that. They've got to do this. You just, but it's that first time of anything is always scary. Well, it's interesting, going back to that whole, your parents like rugby, I like rugby. I think that transition to teenagerness is, is how much your parents going, no, no, you still like rugby. You've always liked rugby. But you see, that's, that's because, and the reason that we bang heads with teenagers so much is there comes a point for a myriad of reasons, and I know I'm simplifying this, teenage brain, the, the child brain, the adult brain, the hormones, all of that, they're developing into young adults, but they still have that emotional need. So they will kick. They're looking for frills. They'll kick. And if you imagine that mum and dad's world is like a tunnel, I've talked about them before, reality tunnels, and they've created a tunnel that's safe for them and works for them. Yep. And all of our tunnels are different. So it might be that 
you know, we go to a pub on Friday night and we have a meal out and whatever it might be. Oh, well, no, you know, we do this every weekend because we all have different ones that work for us that make us feel safe and make us feel that our life's good. Yes. If anybody kicks against that, like a teenager, because they do, it's like, well, hang on a minute. What do you mean it's not good enough? And the moment that thought comes into your head, there's a gap, isn't there? Because you've created this story that your world is good enough. It might not be perfect. You might not earn enough. You might not live where you want to. But it's safe. You know it. Back to safety. If someone starts really questioning your reality, your lifestyle, your little world, you're like, hang on a minute. What are you saying? And if that seed of doubt creates a hole, creates a gap, and the brain doesn't like a gap, that has a lot to do with why we struggle with anyone that's not identical to us because they have a different view on the world and a different take on the world, which means there's something wrong without their questioning ours. That might cause a gap. We can't have gaps. And it's really funny what the brain will do. I've got a, a lovely vicar in our village. I'm not remotely religious, but I'm fascinated and completely respectful of all, so please don't think I'm not. And we talk about therapy a lot in the work I do with kids and stuff. And I said, can I ask? Because she said, are you religious? And I said, I don't think I am. But I said, I'm fascinated. So, you know, we can talk. We have some lovely chats and she's gorgeous. And I said, I'm just curious. And she said, go on, what? Just ask me a question. I said, I get everything you're saying, okay? And you absolutely 100% believe in Jesus and, yeah, yeah, good. I said, that statue on the wall in your church, and she went, what's wrong with it? I went, he's white and he's got blonde hair and blue eyes. And she went, yes. I went, that's okay. She explained it off as religious context of, you know, Jesus and God is who you need them to be. But she had to, or someone somewhere along the line, adapted something to make the story fit for them. Yes. And deleted anything. that. So in the moment I said, well, that's not right, surely. I don't know much, but how can he be? And she deleted what I was saying because I put a hole in the story. So that was a bit of a, 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 an extreme one, but people do it all day long. They'll delete anything that threatens the story they've told themselves that keeps them safe. Yes, because you always have to reinforce why I made this decision and this is why we're here and this is why we're that. But I think, yeah, teenagers is fascinating because they are literally going, I can write my own story. What are the rules? There are no rules. I mean, I had to create my own rules. Oh, I don't, I don't want any rules. And about a month later, perhaps I should start introducing some rules. <laughs> and then you become a parent. <laughs> and I still remember the time I had that thought, which was just blew me away, that 15 years earlier, I was sitting in the back seat of the car in the middle, watching my parents in the front. They were driving. They were in charge. They knew what they were doing. I was just a child being taken on holiday. 15 years later, I'm in that driving seat and I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> and, and there's yeah. my child in the back looking at me going, wow, he knows what he's doing. He's great. And it's like, whoa. And yet, arguably, there's a part of our brain that would absolutely freak if it didn't think we knew what we were doing. Yes. We really are terrified of gaps. It's an interesting concept, the way the brain does that. So one of the things we do when I'm d demonstrating this in the classroom is I put some pictures up, logos, company logos, classic one, World Health Authority, World Wildlife, 
It's a panda, isn't it? Yeah. But it's not. It's a couple of black dots and a couple of black lines. Our brain doesn't like that. It doesn't make sense. So it shoots through the database and comes up with panda. We're doing that all the time. If there's a gap, it freaks us out. It's not safe. So we fill the gap in and we can only fill it in with an experience, either personal or otherwise. If that's a positive one, great. If it's a negative one, ooh. And that also then brings you into your experiences and my experiences are different. Yeah, there are so many, how you got introduced to something and how I got introduced to something could be very different. And just that process will have a very, very different in, has a very different how we see that. Yeah. You obviously love golf. Yeah. <laughs> Ruins a good walk, but yeah. Hey, I, I want to try, I want to try and like golf. I've been to a driving range. I liked that. I've done a bit yeah, of a round of golf and I'm going, oh yeah. And what I've kind of learned in my life is if I really want to do something and like it, I will do it. If I think I like it and I think I should, I probably won't. I don't. You won't again, because if you don't like it, it it's a really interesting thing. Um, we've, we've got six-year-old kids now because we, we don't just do intervention where we go in and step in when there's a problem for kids and teens and parents. We've started doing prevent programs where we get to the kids before the problem starts that they don't need us. And I've got six-year-old kids around the UK that aren't scared of anxiety. doesn't bother them. Why? because they see it for what it is. Everything in our world, I simplify and make into stories because it's easier to swallow. And we teach rather than preach. And I teach the kids that actually anxiety is like a little bodyguard because he is, and he just gets a bad press. So all through your life, you've had this little bodyguard circling around you, invisibly, obviously, because that'd be weird. And it can be anything you want. Okay. And, your bodyguard knows everything in your library, your subconscious, everything you've ever experienced, good and bad. If you're near something good, he just drops on, he's quite happy. If you're near anything that before now upset you, hurt you, he will do what he's supposed to do, protect you. Now, where I explain it to children, obviously, if he fits in your head, he's only tiny, so he can't leap out and go, axe murderer, back off, because axe murderer probably just tread on him. So what he has to do is get your attention and he might make your tummy go a bit funny, which is part of the fight or flight, the blood leaving your stomach, going into your arms and legs. And then if you don't listen to your tummy feeling funny, he might do something else, but your heart go a bit quicker, which is your blood being pumped into your arms and legs. Or he might make your breathing go funny. He's just trying to get your attention so that you turn around and see whatever it is he's aware of that before now scared you. And so the kids get that actually anxiety is just a little bodyguard and he has spotted something that he thinks is scary for you or could harm you. But we've taken it a step further because kids, they won't need us the way we're teaching them. They won't need us because they also get that he can only react to something you previously experienced that has upset you or hurt you. If it hasn't, he won't react. So if he doesn't know it's going to hurt you, apart from that, we don't like gaps, so I'll make you a little bit edgy. So let's take an example. Previously, when you were four or five, you got frightened by a dog. Your bodyguard yep. knows that because it's in your database or subconscious library, in Ollie's word. 
So if he sees a dog, he's going to go, got to protect, got to protect, it's a dog, it's a dog. But kids know that he's doing that because it's in the library, but they also know that it wasn't put in the library yesterday. It might have been last week, last year, two years ago. So I've got six-year-olds that will literally say, yeah, my bodyguard got scared when there was a dog because when I was four, because they can remember, they haven't got as many boxes to work through as us, have they, many files. I can remember when I was four, a dog scaring me. But I was only little then and I couldn't walk to school on my own and I couldn't do this and I couldn't do that. So they're already taking the skills and capabilities they've got as an older person, even though it's only a couple of years, and dismissing that fear because, and they literally, seriously, I've got kids pulling out their little bodyguard, wherever he lives inside them, and going, it's okay, I'm eight now or I'm six now, I'm not four, I don't need to be scared anymore because I can do this and this, all these things you couldn't do when you were four. And they're letting the anxiety go. And we're doing it all over the country. We've got kids that young that are not going to end up on antidepressants and Christ knows what else because they understand anxiety and its purpose. Pure protection, protecting you from something that before now harmed you. The problem comes is, unfortunately, your bodyguard can't tell the difference between a physical threat and an emotional one. He really can't. If it's a physical one, he can make you phone mummy, tell daddy, run away, fight, turn into an emu, whatever you want to do, get away from there. And once you've moved away from the presumed threat, you'll calm down, life goes back to normal, job done. But if it's emotional, you can't run away from an emotion. You can't fight an emotion. So it stays with you, which means you stay in fight or flight response which means you have all those chemicals pumping around you that were designed for minutes to get you out of trouble, really powerful stuff. And after a while, you'll notice that you'll have muscular problems because you're tense all the time. You'll notice that you're not sleeping properly. You'll notice that your immune system's taking a kick because you haven't been able to move away from this perceived threat. And that's why so many people are having to see medication to deal with anxiety now because it's not axe murderers, it's emotional worries. But again, kids are saying, yeah, I know that made me upset when I was five when she said I was silly, but I'm six now and I know I'm not because I did better in math, so I'm not upset by that anymore. And they're letting it go. And the simple thing is, and we're seeing it as they're growing now and going into their teens, they're still using that mythology and letting a lot of the things that you and I are struggling with go. It's really important that that idea of dogs are dangerous. I'm now 44. That Yorkshire Terrier seems a lot smaller to me now than I'm than I was two. It's that acknowledging it was at that point in time a scary situation, but now it's not. And sometimes it's it was I did is recognizing I did this and the dog reacted to me, or it was because I was here, which why that happened. It's being able to oh no, it's not just the fact it's a dog, it's a dog with this and this. And having that understanding as you get older and be able to go, cool, so don't do that, that and that together. Yep. But also coming full circle again, we write stories. So the story our four-year-old wrote when the dog scared her was it was a big dog, huge with fangs, and it jumped up. The story the six-year-old wrote when she remembers that is, well, I was a lot smaller, so it probably wasn't that big, and I don't need to be scared now because I can do this and this. So she's changed her story. So the story's gone from I'm a child terrified of dogs to I'm a child aware of dogs, but I'm not terrified because I can do this and this. That removes the need for anxiety at the level that we're seeing at the moment. And again, it's a lovely thing 
because it allows children to change their story, but still have a story. So there's no gaps, but it's a more positive, powerful one. Okay. So it's all about children going, well, I'm not bigger now. I've not had my height increase for a very long time. So I'm not bigger now than I was. It's about capabilities. That's where I was going. So it's not just about I'm bigger now. It's I didn't know that then, or I couldn't do that then. There's a lot of that, isn't there? There absolutely is. And, you know, and you use what you're given. So if I was doing work with anxiety or fear or phobia with a little one or explaining it, I want to know when it happened. And they can usually tell you to the day because they haven't got so many memories to go through as you and I've got. But it'll be, tell me about you now. What do you love? What do you oh, I play football. All oh, right, where do you play? Centre half. Oh, you've got to be clever for that. Yeah, you've got to think. I get them to tell me stuff about themselves they're proud of. So how do you get to school? I ride my bike on my own now. I don't have to have mummy with me. Sun it out. So I get them just to affirm to themselves loads of stuff that they can do now. I said, could you do that when you're four? Oh, no, I was only a baby when I was four, but I'm growing up now. You use what you're given. So it's not necessarily a height thing, it's a capability. But what the brain's doing is saying, that was me then, this is me now, we're two different animals. So if we're two different animals, we're not going to react the same way. And that's why kids are allowed to do or are capable of dealing with anxiety so much blimmin' better than we are. Although the principle works the same for us. I remember, on a, I think we're doing a podcast on trauma, and you talked about how this person was thinking about an incident that happened to her when she was much younger. And you said to her, you're using your 30-year-old brain to tell six-year-old you what they did wrong. You were six. And I mean, that stuck in my head. That little bit you said there is, I got, when I got my first job, I'm not talking trauma a bit, when I got my first job, I had no idea what was going on. No one had to said the word tax to me. No one has said the words employment rights or anything like that. And then you get mistreated. You're like, you learn. Yeah. So when you get your next job, oh, I'm better at this now. I'll, I'll, I'll read this. I'll read this contract. <laughs> yeah. So you get that contract. Oh, I'm reading this one. And you learn. That's the thing. It's, it is, it is that you get more and more experience. I personally feel you, all, you mainly learn from mistakes. If you got everything right the first time, you're very, very, very lucky. Or you're not really trying. You generally learn through making. I, I got asked. I got asked. Sorry to interrupt. I got asked the other day when um, one of the things we do, we, we train therapists, as you know, just mums, dads, teachers. We're not looking for therapy to therapists. And obviously, we've got to assess them all the way through the course. And part of the assessment is a written question and answer. And you have to get so many to pass, or you have to do it again. And I always get, when do we get to do it again? And is it the same questions? When it's exactly the same questions, and we're doing this at 10 o'clock in the morning. If you don't get enough, you do it again at 12. And I go, but at 12, everybody would have given us the answers. The rest of the people in the group went, yeah, probably. They went, well, how's that passing a test? And I said, because what are you going to remember, the ones that you knew or the ones that you didn't know that you had to go and find out about? And my thing is, it's a cliche thing, but there's no failure. There's only feedback. So I don't think anyone ever really fails. All they do is find ways not to do it. And every time you find a way not to do it, you're close to finding a way to do it. That's the thing about Edison, wasn't it? How many light bulbs? Are, yes. How many he did? And he was, oh, you, how many, you know, how many times have you got this wrong? I haven't got it wrong. <laughs> I, I've just had another way it didn't work. Yeah, which is brilliant. It's all learning. It, every, everything, isn't it? It's about your perspective and your perspective on life. And 
your outlook on life, so we come full circle again with my deletions, distortions, is based on what's in your library or subconscious. If you were brought up with, okay, well done, okay, you didn't quite get 10 out of 10, but, you know, that's really, I'm so proud of you. You can have another go if you want. Then you aren't going to have a fear of tests and you're not going to worry that you didn't get 10 out of 10. But if you got seven, that's all you got. Well, you didn't try, did you? That pressure starts to write a story in you. And then we're back to my stories and realities again. Yes. And that is, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. And that will color your world going forward. So then when you're predicting, generalized eating or deleting, that's all in there too. Well, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. We write our own stories. And the moment that you recognize that and that you are completely responsible for your story and people go, well, I'm not, you know, my mum was this, my dad was that, life threw me a curveball, I was in an accident, I lost my leg. That's not my fault. I'm not responsible for that. You're not responsible for other people and external events, but you are absolutely responsible for how you choose to cope with that, deal with it. And you have every right to be angry, upset, grieve, every right. There's no right or wrong. But you do have to take responsibility for it. I love to on a podcast. You sit there, you say something, I'm going, oh, no, 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 because of, oh. I was like, I think in lots of people's things, they've kind of let, they will say, well, I've others have written my story. They've told me I'm not good enough. They've told me this. It's like, no, you are the one, you're the only person with a pen. Yeah? Yeah. They've said these things. They've done these things. We just didn't know. We didn't have to write it down. There's a lovely thing in therapy that I absolutely believe in. So when anyone comes to see me, what's going on in my head is no matter what they present with, all behavior serves a purpose and it has a positive intent, which is hard to swallow when I've got a teenager that's suicidal, self-harming or Christ knows what. How can that be positive? Drugs, drink, how can that be positive? But there was a point in time where that behavior was positive because it was the only thing that got them through something. But if you try and change that behavior, you'll be there forever and you'll be selling them short because behaviors are driven by emotions. It's the emotion you attach that depicts how you react to something and the behavior that you take on. So if you choose to look external, that is a behavior you are choosing to do. Why? It's helpful in some way. By doing that, you're deleting the fact that it's any of your responsibility. You can distort and blame the world on other people. You don't have to take responsibility. And you can generalize that's always the way. Everybody knows that it's bad parenting that has created me. And then you don't have to take responsibility. And I, again, come back to it. I've got six-year-olds, let alone 56-year-olds, that will tell you, no one can make me think or feel anything I don't allow myself to. Now, that's a biggie to swallow. But I'm telling you, if you can swallow that at six, oh, my God, is your life going to be a lot better? Everything we are, we choose to be. Problem is, you then got to sit there and go, I can change this. Yeah, and that's scary, isn't it? That's coming out of the cave. That's not safe. That's a gap. Yeah. If I blame everyone else, it's not my fault. Yeah, I don't have to do anything about it. I can stay stuck. And you can blame lots of people. There are probably lots of things that go on in, in our lives which are not our fault, that do not, but they also do not reflect on you. Yeah, 
it's really easy for me to say to my teenage daughter, yeah, she's saying that. It's not about you. It's about her. Yeah, she doesn't really mean it. She's just having a bad day or something horrible to her, so she's letting it out on you. My teenage daughter just does not believe me. And, and you know, it, they won't. I think depending on how you put it across and when, so if you put it across at the point where she just feels that, you know, she's received on the negative end, she's not going to bloody listen because she's telling herself a story. But it's how and when you do it that affects that. We do it a lot. And I think she's getting there because she sees how and she's really good at not reacting. So she sits there. She doesn't bite when they're saying these things. She just kind of lets it from the outside. She lets it blow over her. Yeah. On the inside, it is impacting her and we talk about it all. And then a couple of days later, that other person changes and my daughter is now seeing it and believing it more. It's still impacting her and she has to let it all out. I don't know if it's having such a long-term impact on her. She gets home, she's angry, she's ranting. But once that's out, it's kind of going, yeah, they did that, and it's angry about that person. But actually, I'm just going to play my game now. Because because you work it through. And, you know, it's really, really important. As much as I'm saying no one can make you think or feel anything you don't allow yourself to, it's very grown up, isn't it, even though we've got six-year-olds that get it. But you are absolutely allowed to feel anything you want. You can feel angry. You can feel that, you know, you've got the short straw. You can feel it's allowed. We have these emotions for a reason. So you're allowed to feel and express them. I'm not saying you're not, but you need to take responsibility for the fact that you are allowing yourself to feel them. And, you know, that's a good thing. It's a good thing to allow yourself to be angry and grieve, but you need to take responsibility. That is your choice to feel that way. Nobody has made you. I can't make you feel anything that you don't allow yourself to. Yeah. I really can't. And that's the thing is there's one thing is allowing yourself. Yeah. Is like, oh, Ali said this before we recorded, made me feel absolutely horrible. <laughs> she didn't. She was lovely. But I, I don't have two options is do I record with Ali again? Well, no, because she made me feel horrible last time. Now I'm going to remove myself from that situation. Or do I record with Ali and let her be horrible to me again? Or you can hear what I just said. And there is nothing I can say. I could punch you. That would hurt, right? But there is nothing that I can say that can hurt you. How, my word, you know, sticks and stones will break my bones and that words will never hurt you. They can if you let them. Or it's a 20-foot neon sign, then it can hurt. Yeah, those words will hurt a yeah, lot. So, yeah. But it's that thing is, it's, the rule. Yeah. so Ali can make me feel rubbish, but she hasn't. She said something, I've felt rubbish through me. I felt rubbish. But the only reason you felt rubbish is because there's something in your library I've just triggered. Someone else made me feel horrible. It was about the same thing. So, okay, I said it again. Someone else said something which made me feel horrible. And Ali's touched on that, touched on that nerve. You've connected the dots if you don't like cats. And you can either deal with that, which isn't always easy, but you can also, you can remove yourself from situations where you hear it. Yeah. And recognise that, I'll give you a classic. When I, I hated school, I can't read and write, and I had a particularly evil teacher. Love teachers, by the way, guys, your biggest advocate. But she thought it would be astonishingly funny to make me stand at the front of the class and write the word difficult or differently, I can't remember now, on the board, which, of course, I got wrong quite a few times. And the kids started to snigger, and she laughed. And in that moment, I wrote a story about me. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. Nobody wants anything to do with me. And that 
had a huge effect on how I lived my early years until I started to work this stuff out, mainly from training to be a therapist myself. A few weeks back, I was in a meeting. We were pitching for some corporate work, change management. I was in this meeting, lovely boardroom. Everybody was really, really lovely. But all the way through, I felt really anxious and I just didn't know. I had no reason to be, but I felt just a little bit anxious. I know, because I'm a therapist now, that when I feel anxious, it's because my bodyguard has spotted something I haven't. But there, there was nothing. There was nothing. And I was like, what's this about? It was only when we were getting up to leave, shaking hands with everybody, I got to the door. I looked back because I'm always leaving stuff and I saw what it was. The chairs had purple cushions. So what? <laughs> In that moment, I flashed back into my library or subconscious to the memory of that day of that awful teacher ridiculing me. And her chair had exactly the same purple cushion on. So my bodyguard's a job's worth. And he took that purple cushion to be connected to the memory of me feeling ridiculed and not safe. So when he saw that purple cushion, it was like, oh, Lord, here we go again. Why does that happen? Because it's interesting to know this. If you've got a fear or a phobia and a therapist is having a hard time getting to the root of it for you, she might say, I've got a bird phobia. Yeah, it's all birds, definitely birds. It might well be if there was a particular incident, but chances are, that it isn't the bird per se. It might be its beak. It might be the way it moves. It might be, it might be, it might be. Because if we go back to the classroom when I was little, when I walked into that classroom, my senses did what your senses are doing now. So wherever you're sat listening to this, I presume somewhere you know, somewhere you've been before, when you walked into that room or wherever you are, your eyes took a million pictures. Click. Your ears were listening for any sounds that shouldn't be there, hissing, scraping in the corner, that kind of thing. You were testing the temperature, you were tasting the air, you were sniffing the air. Your senses took the most brilliant film of that situation. And that's what happened when I was a kid. So although I remember the teacher and how she made me feel, if I really went back into that memory, I'd probably be able to bring up every child's face, every smell in that room, every sound. And obviously the purple cushion. All of that is part of that memory. My bodyguard doesn't know which bit really upset me. Was it the teacher? Was it the kids? He doesn't know and he's not going to take a chance. So he has a video of that whole situation. For all he knows, it was the purple cushion, which is why he made me anxious. It's all about our experiences and it's all about how our mind keeps us safe. And anxiety yeah, ain't a problem. It's just your bodyguard. And if you recognize that, hell, I was seven or eight. I'm not now. That can never happen again. And it can't happen again because if that teacher did laugh at me, I'd probably put her in a box. Yeah. It can't happen because I'm a different person. And also, hopefully, if there was a younger you right now in a school, that situation won't happen. So that thing. Not only are we changing how we how what impacts the child, so that story, that situation, not happening, but we're also helping the children deal with them. That look, if it does happen, if something does happen, this is how you deal with it. So we're, we're doing it. It's like your self harm. You can't just tell them don't cut yourself. You've got to give them a solution for that, but you've also got to help them with the what's causing it in the first place. It's a double pronged thing. With this, it's that sort of thing. It's you're giving them tools 
to manage that situation better and understand it and look at it and reflect back on it. But also at the same time, the whole world is hopefully stopping those situations happen. Ideally. But, you know, as the thing I have about a lot of therapies based on behaviours. So anxiety arguably is an emotion, but it's also a behaviour because it is a bodyguard. But if you just deal with the behaviour and try and change that, you might be successful, but it will reform because you haven't got to what created that behaviour and it's an emotion. So it's an emotional response that creates a behaviour to try and make you safe or to deal with the situation. So you've got to deal with the emotion first and foremost. And if you don't, you're going to go round and round and round in circles on that one. That is, yeah, that's true. Because there are times where you're, I'm struggling with it, trying to work out the answer, but I'm never happy with them. And it's often because in Rip, if I look back, it's I haven't dealt with the emotion yet. So you might find like there are 12 ways to solve this problem and you're not confident in any of them. Then you go away and you come back. And when you're feeling better, it's really obvious which one is the right one. But that's probably, in hindsight, I dealt with the emotion. It's absolutely. I mean, there's a, there's a saying, heightened emotion makes you stupid. There's a biological reason for that. One of the parts of fight or flight response is your brain doesn't... Imagine axe murderers just walked in on me, okay? And I've gone into full fight or flight, so my heartbeat speeded up, the blood's pumping out of my stomach. Oh, that's going on. I'm ready to run or fight. Um, Because I'm a therapist, there is a risk that I'm going to go, hello, axe murderer, did you have a bad childhood? Do you want to talk about it? By the time I've done that, it's not ended well, has it? So what happens is, and again, I'm simplifying it, but the blood leaves the part of your brain that allows you to think clearly and make sensible decisions because it doesn't want you to. It wants you to run or fight. It doesn't trust us. So at the point where you are in a heightened state, you can't think. It doesn't want you to. Heightened emotion makes you stupid, not just a so-called negative one. You know, if you're exuberantly happy, (laughs) I remember talking about this the other day and someone said, oh, my friend's just met someone who's Mr. Right and, oh, my God, she's so happy. She's just smiling all the time and you can't get any sense out of her. And we all know he's probably not, actually, and there's a couple of reasons. But she just won't hear us. And no, she won't. Heightened emotion makes us stupid. Well, it doesn't make us stupid, but it makes us incapable of making sensible decisions, evaluating the situation. It just wants us to run or fight. End of. I suppose, actually, that whole thing of if you're in that good mood, there's that emotion is driving that process. Yeah, the emotion of I feel good, he's making me feel good, I'm going to do this, this is great. You kind of, the other part of you going, won't even get heard because it's the emotion driving. And and you won't because deletions, distortions, generalizations. We will see and hear and witness what we want to, to make our story complete. And that's a really interesting thing because in that case, my story complete is, is Prince Charming and I'm going to live happily ever after. So you could argue that's not a bad one to delete, distort and ignore anything. But we do that with every situation to allow the story we're telling ourselves to be robust and have no gaps. We don't like gaps, even if it's a negative one, because we know that story. We know how to survive that story. If there's a gap and there's something we don't know or understand, that's scary. So we delete it, we distort it, we see and hear what we want to hear. I find it, I love the fact that if you have a childhood memory and you tell your parents, they'll look at you completely confused. 
because they either don't remember it or they remember it very differently. And it's because it had that emotional impact on you or something, which is why you remember it, which is really big. And they're literally going, no, it was a great day out. Just we? Oh, that's not our own. But I also find we were on a family holiday many years ago, 16 odd years ago. We went somewhere we used to go as child, kids. And my parents took us back there as adults with our kids. And I'm going, oh, I love my holidays here. My sister said to me, why have we come here? I went, because we've come here a lot. She went, I've never been here before in my life. And I'm going, I think we've had like 10 ice creams in this <laughs> shop here. Yeah. She's literally looking at it going, I've never been here. You spent two weeks living in a cottage up there. She had no memory of it. And I just felt that really odd. But perhaps it was, I've had lots of happy memories associated with that. Perhaps she was going through something in her life. There's, there's more of a possibility that something not so great happened or it just didn't register with her emotionally in the way it did for you. But the other thing, the thing you were saying about the parents going, well, no, it wasn't that big a deal, what you're going on about, is, and again, we see this a lot in therapy. I, and I, there was a lovely lady, and I'm, unfortunately, she'd been abused when she was quite young. She came to see me and I said, what's, you know, it sounds like a daft question, but what's the overriding emotion that you're struggling with right now? And she went, anger. And I thought, well, yeah, that makes sense. I would be too. And she went, oh, not with uncle, with myself. I went, with yourself. I went, yeah. Now, she was abused when she was three or four by a family member. And I didn't expect that, but you shouldn't assume. I said, you're angry with yourself because your uncle abused you when you were four. She went, absolutely. I don't, you're going to have to talk me through that one. And she said, I should have phoned Childline. I should have done this. I should have kicked him here. I should. And she reeled off all these things. And I went, stop. I said, everything you're saying that you should have done is what the, a lady your age, an adult, would do in that scenario. You weren't. You're a child. So what she's done, and we do this all the time as well, and it's worth remembering. And that's probably why, you know, when you've all been on holiday, you'll have different takes on the holiday, is when we recall something from the past, we're changing it. Every time we bring a memory up, we are physically changing it because we're changing it because we have more skills and capabilities and understanding about the world and how it works. Hence, she was not looking at it through a four-year-old's eyes. You should be scared, upset, or well, I don't know what they should be. That was the wrong thing for me to say. But she was looking at it through a 30-year-old's eyes. You would phone Childline and do this, this, and this. So we're continually doing that as well. So memories aren't real. They are elastic. And they change every time we bring them up, depending on the new things we've experienced and we've learned about ourselves. So you can't actually trust the story other than to know that you've created it and that it is trying to protect you. And it, by protecting you, it's making life not so great for you. Then you kind of have to accept that it thinks it's better than the alternative because it doesn't know what the alternative is. That's a gap. We don't do gaps. That's scary. We're going to stay put. Because in my head is if you recall a memory, like an earliest memory, you can look back at it now and go, oh, I understand that better, blah, 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 blah. But in reality, you probably only really remember the level of your understanding at that point. Yeah? So it's like trying to decipher spots the dog's books. Now you're an adult and trying to get something more from it. No, no, it was written at that level, and that's the level it's written at. And that's your memory is at that level. Now, if you if you were an adult watching that completely separately, you could probably pick out loads of stuff, but that's not written down. That's not recorded in that story. It's, you can't help, but as you grow, as you learn, as you have more life experience, 
you can't look at something in the same way you looked at it as a child. And it's a real damn shame because I think we'd all be a lot happier if we could look at things through a child's eyes from time to time. We overcomplicate it and we've added into every memory life, good and bad, whereas a child only knows wonder. Yes, that is definitely true. In a bad situation. I, there is that innocence of that child. And as I said before we recorded, my mum always tells me, when are you going to grow up? I'm like, why? I pay my bills. I do this. I do that. I do everything you, I'm expected of me. I just do it with a bit more fun. What's wrong with that? Right. Let's wrap up. What, what does grow up mean? <laughs> well, that's the thing. I think what she meant was I should be boring. It's, that's all I've taken from that because she'd been saying it to me now for 20 something years. <sighs> How interesting. Nobody can make you think or feel anything you don't allow yourself to. What is it that allows you to hear that and think that? It's like, going, cool. So yeah, I'll grow up and I'll get a job. Cool. When are you going to grow up? I've got a job. When are you going to grow up? I've got kids now. I'm running a company. What does this grown up mean? And I just got to the point going, you just probably want me to be boring. I just, I never understood what I, I thought it was do something. There'll be a something I can achieve. A benchmark I will pass. It's an interesting thing. And again, it's nature and nurture. You'll have some families where, I remember I grew up in a town called St. Nitz outside Cambridge, Bridge Iver End. Not many people went to uni. It was unheard of. We worked in local factories. And if you didn't, why? It's not as good enough for us. Why is it not good enough for you? And it was almost seen as an insult if you wanted to do something different because you were questioning the reality, the, the world, the story that your family had written for themselves that worked for them. If you questioned it and wanted to do something different, then you were saying that theirs wasn't good enough and there was something wrong with it. And that's offensive because that makes them question it and look at it sideways and creates gaps. And we don't like gaps in our stories. Oh, no, 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 no. So as you're growing and you're changing how you're being, they're going to say, no, why aren't you doing it this? When are you going to grow up? But to fit back into their story. Yeah. So there's no gaps. And if you do something different, you put a gap in their story. You're not doing. You're not following the script. That's naughty. That's scary. That creates vulnerability. Definitely interesting. Thank you for coming on the show today. No worries. Fun as always. <laughs> always. So as always, got some links that Ali's given me. So I'll be putting those in the show notes along with all of Ali's contact details. And as always, you'll find the show notes on our website or wherever you listen to the podcast. So thank you for listening. If you haven't subscribed already, click on that subscribe button or go to the website to find out where you can listen to it in lots of different places. You can find the show notes on our website, blah, 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 blah. You can also sign up for our newsletter. So we do have a newsletter and we'll let you know stuff we're doing and any other stuff we're doing as well, which is a great way to just find out what's going on. But always get in touch with your thoughts. If you want us to talk about something on the podcast or anything else, please send an email to hello at thesendcast.com. Let us know what you think. And as always, be squared. If you are struggling to show progress, if your assessment process is overcomplicated, takes too long, or you just want to see what is available, have a look at the B Squared website or book a free online meeting with me so I can take you through our products. We have lots of different things all around showing progress for pupils with SEND. Okay, so find the link to the website and the meeting in the show notes. Have a look around our website, book a meeting with me, and I'll explain everything we do. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Take care, everyone.
Bye. Bye.